Welcome to Monday Morning Coffee with Inside the Firm. Each week, our hosts will be interviewing local, regional, and national business leaders to give you an inside peek into how they lead their business to success in the ever-competitive business climate. Welcome to Monday Morning Coffee with Inside the Firm. Today, I have a wonderful and special guest, Brian Clayton. He is the CEO and co-founder of GreenPal, a mobile app that connects homeowners with local lawn professionals. GreenPal has been called the Uber for lawn care by Entrepreneur Magazine and has over 300,000 active users, completing thousands of transactions per day, doing over 20 million a year in sales. Before starting GreenPal, Brian Clayton founded Peachtree Inc., one of the largest landscaping companies in the state of Tennessee, growing it to over $10 million a year in annual revenue before it was acquired by Lusa Holdings in 2013, in one of the largest acquisitions in the industry in a decade. Brian's interest and expertise are related to entrepreneurialism, small business growth, marketing, and bootstrapping businesses from zero revenue to profitability and exit. Brian, welcome to the show. Lance, great to be here. Thanks for having me on your show. Yes, sir. Before we get into what you do now, and, and I guess what you did before too, is um, tell us how you got here. Did you grow up in a family of entrepreneurs? Are you the first? Where did that spirit come from? Yeah, I'd like to tell you that I was a born entrepreneur, but the reality is I was forced into it. I was forced into it by my dad on a hot summer day. He said, get off your butt. I got a job for you to do. You're going to go mow the neighbor's yard. And he made me go cut the neighbor's grass. Luckily, he did that because I made $20 in a, at an hour, which in the mid-90s was a lot of money. Yeah. And I was, I was hooked. I was hooked on entrepreneurship from that moment until now. For the rest of my life, I, I thought, this is it. I, you know, owning a business is where it's at. And I remember I, I passed out a bunch of flyers that, that first summer and got a handful of customers and stuck with this lawn mowing business all through high school and then all through college and over like a 15 year period of time, built one of the larger landscaping companies in the Southeast, uh, over 150 employees, 10 million a year in revenue. And then in 2013, that business was acquired by a large conglomerate uh, in the industry. And, and so after that, I took a pause, took some time off and self-reflected and realized, well, I, I am wired to want to be in the game. I'm, I'm missing this. And I thought, well, what now? And I thought, well, somebody should build an app that works like Uber, but for lawn care. And how hard could that be? And uh, it's kind of naivete as an asset. Uh, I recruited two co-founders and, and we, we came up with the idea for GreenPal, which is the, the company I'm working on now. And and GreenPal is a decade in the, in the making. It's a decade, 10-year uh, overnight success. And now we're nationwide in the United States, over 300,000 people using our app to get their lawn mowed. Yeah, incredible. Just from just starting from mowing lawns. I mean, I just love when people have those humble beginnings. And I think um, a lot of people do, such as yourself. Um, we can go back just a little bit. Tell us about Peachtree, how, how, when, when you started it. And then um, how did you figure out how to properly manage blue collar workers? Because I own a construction company in addition to the architecture firm. And I think it managing blue collars versus white collars is just an entirely different animal for better or for worse. And uh, I'm curious about that. It really is. It, it's challenging. Uh, anytime you're managing a, a workforce that uh, is, is executing manual labor, 
it's it's a it's another animal it's another beast and that was one of the competitive advantages that that I had running that business was the way we developed our culture the way we looked at our people and how we treated our people and how we we really felt like that was the the strongest piece of the whole equation was getting that right and you, you really have to you have to look at it from a standpoint of helping people get what they want and the business is the thing that helps get them there. And uh, I get this question a lot as people ask me, well, nobody wants to work and, you know, I can't get any help. And, and you really kind of have to look at it as though you have a value proposition for customers and you also have a value proposition for employees. And, and so your value proposition is something along the lines of if I'm your ideal prospect, why would I do business with you versus anybody else? And the answer to that question always starts with because. So if I'm your ideal customer, why would I choose your construction company over any other construction company? Well, because we have this proprietary process where we design it and we build it and we make sure it's done right and we follow up, you know, whatever. And then, but you also have to have that for your employees. So if I'm your ideal employee, why would I come work for you versus anybody else? Well, because... Uh, we, we have competitive pay and we pay a little more. Uh, we have a four day a week work week. Uh, we have free college. If you, if you, if you qualify, we give out free loans for a down payment on a house interest free, uh, after you've been with us for three years, whatever it's, it's, it's unique, interesting things that cause you to be better in the marketplace than anybody else, um, on both sides of the equation. And that's kind of how I looked at it in that business. Um, and I had very, very low turnover. When I sold the company in 2013, I had people working for me over for over 15 years. Um, and, and we probably had less than less than 5% attrition in terms of people that worked for us because we looked at it that way. We, we flat out were just the best in the market for people that wanted to work for us. So those items that you mentioned, you know, the interest-free loan for a house, for example, and stuff. Are those things that, I mean, were you citing examples like that? You literally those are, did those things? Those are things that we did. Yeah. If, if you had been with us for, I think it was over 24 months and you, you hit your, your metrics and you were, you were a good team member and you had a good attitude and, and, and we just wanted to keep you. If you came to us and wanted to go buy a home and needed 20 grand or 30 grand or 40 grand, we would loan you that money interest-free uh, to go buy a house. We did that dozens and dozens of times. We would also do it for uh, kids' schools. We would do it for, uh, we had a lot of, uh, we had some, some immigrant laborers that, that, that came from Guatemala and Mexico. And we funded no telling how many businesses back home for those folks. We built a soccer arena back in Guatemala City, Guatemala uh, City one time. And so it was these little things that we did that were, that were extra, that were different, that were better than our competitors and, and people worked for us for five, 10, 15 years. Yeah. It, I mean, it sounds like you're bucking the trend of what we had heard, you know, I don't know, for the past couple of decades of people just jumping from job to job. That's pretty commendable of you. Um, did you, when, did you always have the intention of exiting from that company and, and selling it like you did, or was it sort of kind of coming out of the blue? Um, no, I did not. I had really I built that business thinking I was going to run it the rest of my life. I enjoyed running it. Uh, I was making a good living doing it. I, I enjoyed the people that worked for my company. We were like family. Uh, but, but something hit me about year 10 was that the business was kind of the vehicle that was, that was guiding me through life and helping me overcome challenges and obstacles that I had never faced before and learning and growing and taking on new things. And I had kind of hit a plateau, I guess you could say, of personal development. 
where I was kind of uh, not challenged by the business anymore. Not that, not that it was an easy business to run. It wasn't, but it was, it was more or less along the lines of I was in search of something different, more challenging and new. And once that moment like came into my head, I thought, well, maybe it's time to start exploring an, an exit, uh, an acquisition of this company. And uh, from the moment I had that, that, that notion to the time I got the business sold was over two years. It took a long time. Had to reverse engineer a lot of things into the business that, that weren't there. And, uh, and, and luckily I did that because it, that was a new challenge. And, and by the time I sold the company, I didn't want to sell it. Uh, I had fallen in love yeah. with it all over again. It's a weird thing. Yeah, I'm sure it was like tuning up the engine again that had been running for a while. That's sort of an analogy. I totally get it. Well, not necessarily tuning up the engine. It's literally taking the engine out, stripping it down, oh. and rebuilding it. Oh, yeah, wow. Yeah, it ain't just slapping a pair of some spark plugs and a new belt in there. It literally was rebuilding the entire business from the sticks, from the inside out. And I, and I think a lot of people that have gone through that um, usually find it to be the same way. You, you, rarely do you build a business that can be turnkey acquired. Uh, unless you do it the right way, which is read the book built to sell and then do everything that book says and work a five-year plan. But, but nobody does that. Mm -hmm. um, few people do. If you do, you're smart, but, but I wasn't smart. I had to reverse engineer all these things. Well, I think uh, to be fair to you, I think a lot of people do what they do when they first start businesses is their first primary objective is, and it should be, is to survive and thrive. Yeah. And so, you know, yeah, I mean, what you're doing, obviously it worked for you and it was successful and um, we, we've had other guests that have done some, the same for you. I wondered if I could pivot just for one second too, to maybe education. I, I kind of did a little bit of research on you and just to see what ahead of this, uh, interview. And, um, so I see that you've received a, a bachelor's in administration, a BA and, uh, with so many people going to college, do you, do you, do you still think people need to go in order to start run and manage a business? I mean, would, would you recommend it still or not, or is it kind of all over the place with that? Yeah. You know, college, Taught me a lot of things, how to write, how to communicate, how to, you know, basics around accounting and economics. And, um, but it was funny when I was going through school, it, it, I was running a real business. By the time I graduated college, I had 25 employees. And, and so there was kind of this, this disconnect between things I was learning in business school and what it was actually like in the trenches running a small business. And I was like, that's not how it really is. This is not how marketing works. This is not, you know, how, how R and D works and things like that. And so there's a disconnect, I think. So my, 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 my answer to that question is if, if you're 18 years old and you're not going to do anything for the next five years of your life and you're not going to start a business, you're not going to uh, join a startup or you're not going to learn skills around coding or things like that, then go to college because, because then you'll get something out of those four or five years. But if you if you want to get in the game, start a business. If you if you're hacking on stuff, if you if you already have a business, uh, maybe you're in construction and you you're running a block crew or something like that, and you really just want to focus on your business. Don't go to school. Don't go to yeah. business school. You don't need it. Uh, you really don't. So in lieu of doing nothing, go to college. But if you can make a plan for what to do with those four or five years of your life, your 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 contemporaries will never catch up with you. And you could retire at age 30 if you, if you really press it. Uh, if, if you skip those college years and, and really work 70, 80, 90 hour weeks building a business, getting something off the ground, you'll be glad you did. And who cares? You know, college, I think every year that goes by that, that knowledge is democratized and you can go to YouTube University, I think a standard education becomes less and less valuable. 
Yeah, exactly. Yeah. There's just so exactly why I was trying to emphasize that point about there's so many people going to college. So uh, not to take away from it in a certain way. I mean, I went and I teach, but I just was interested to pick your brain about that. Um, Tell us how you would go and maybe people listening to this can go from uh, growing a business from zero to eight figures with no outside capital. I know sometimes a lot of businesses bring in capital right away. And I think that's a mistake from, I haven't done it yet. You know, we've went from zero to seven figures. Eventually, hopefully we'll be at eight, but I would love to hear your perspective on that. I believe revenue is the best form of financing, whether if you're at a thousand dollars a month or, or 10 or a hundred thousand or a million dollars a month in revenue, I think revenue is the best form of financing because it causes you to do one thing, focus on the customer, focus on solving a problem for the customer Focus on what they're saying, what they're telling you, keeping them happy, keeping them using your product and service. Whereas if you go and raise a bunch of money, it's easy to lose sight of that. Um, and so that necessity is the mother of invention is very real when you're, when you're starting from scratch, when you're getting your first you know, half a million, million, 10 million in revenue. And so that's my perspective. Now, if you've been around the block a couple of times and you've built and sold a couple of businesses and the third or fourth go around, you want to go fast raising capital can help you move a lot quicker. And because you're an experienced operator, you can put it to work uh, and make, make smarter bets. But my experience is for most first time founders, raising money is a bad bet. You're better off doing whatever you can to hustle up your first dozen customers and listen to them, make it frictionless for them to speak with you. Your cell phone number needs to be on the emails. Your, your cell phone number needs to be on the homepage. They need to talk to you so then you know where to take the business. And, and really looking at it almost like a video game, like one level at a time. You know, level one's the hardest level, believe it or not. Getting your first 10K a month in revenue is going to be hard. But don't worry about anything else until you get that. And then get to level two. Okay, now how do we get to a quarter million a year in revenue? Okay, now how do we get to half a million a year in revenue? And, and it's taking it one little level at a time is how it's unfolded for me, I guess, two times now building two eight-figure businesses. It just literally focusing on the level you're on and not worrying about anything else. Yeah, I like that. Let's move on to GreenPal and uh, tech businesses. Um, uh, I know a lot of people have ideas that involve basically kind of being, you know, making a tech company, but they might not uh, know how to code. So how does one go about building a tech company if you have zero idea how to code? So one thing I'll say about building a tech business that oftentimes gets overlooked, most of the time when you are building a technology enabled business, you're building something brand new from scratch that does not yet exist. So you're inventing a brand new product. Whereas, you know, if you have a landscaping business like, like, like I used to have or a construction company or remodeling service or a bakery or a restaurant, whatever, you're, you're executing on kind of a known business plan and maybe you're doing it better than your competitors and so on. But whenever you enter the arena of a technology company, most of the time you're inventing something brand new. And so that's a lot harder. You're having to kind of discover who your customers are. You're kind of, you're having to learn from your customers in terms of, are you solving a pain point? Are you solving a problem that they want to pay for? And that's a lot more challenging than a typical type of business. So it's not necessarily the technology that's the hard part. It is, but that's much harder. Inventing a brand new thing that doesn't exist is much more difficult than I ever imagined. And that was one of the things that confronted me uh, when, when I started GreenPal. Now that said, let's say you, you've got that figured out and, and you're like, yeah, no, people are beating my door down to use this thing. They really want me to solve this problem for them with technology, but I don't know how to code. 
What do I do? Well, uh, the, the reality is, is that at some point you're going to have to learn how to code. You're going to have to learn technology. You're going to have to learn how to build software. Now you can extend the runway these days with, with what they call low code and no code options. You can put forth a pretty crappy uh, prototype that people will use and maybe get your first dozen customers that way. But even cobbling those things together requires a, a bit of technical acumen. So you're going to have to you're going to have to start learning how to build software. You're going to start learning how to execute on a, on the on, on on technology. And these days, the, the the good the good news is is if you're sufficiently motivated, you can learn it. I learned how to I learned how to build front end uh, a software. I learned and my my co-founder learned how to build back end. Took us three years, but we learned. We self taught, and now we can now we have a team of 52 engineers, and and we know how to manage them. We know how to delegate things to them. So. So the reality is, is at some point you're going to have to learn or somebody on your team is going to have to know, uh, you have to have a co-founder, but you can de-risk the idea uh, with kind of out of the box solutions and validate that's a good idea. Get your first five or 10 customers and, and then recruit a technical co-founder, then begin to learn to build software and things like that. Most people uh, don't do the first step and then they spend a year building something or pay some dev shop to build something and they don't have 10 customers. And then they build it and realize nobody wants it. And mm. that happened. That happens 99% of the time, unfortunately, yeah. sadly. Yeah. 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 Rather than testing it right away and seeing if there's even need for it. So when you say you actually learned to code, I mean, you said self-taught, but how exactly? So if you want to learn front-end uh, development or back-end development, there's a never-ending amount of resources online to learn it for free. And if you want to, if you want something that's more turnkey, you can pay a little bit. You can go to uh, boot camps and, and learn this stuff. I I learned uh, on, on YouTube most of everything I know about coding up front end uh, design. Um, Envato Tuts has got a real good uh, real good uh, set of, of of videos and tutorials where you can literally code uh, right there alongside the tutorial. So you can learn this stuff online for free. It just takes time. It's hard. If you've never done it before, it can seem weird and mysterious. But the reality is, if I can learn it, anybody can learn it. Um, now, am I a great engineer? No, but, but I was decent enough to get, help us get the first version out the door. And then, uh, we could start to delegate and build out a team of engineers around us. It's kind of like if you wanted to open a five-star restaurant, uh, with no chef and you yourself are not somebody that just loves to cook at home and you're not experimenting with recipes and you just have a passion for developing some sort of like unique recipe that people love to taste yet you want to go start a five-star restaurant. You're probably going to have a pretty tough time. Technology is the same way. Yeah. Well, one of the points you made about that was that you, then you were able to delegate and work with your team. I mean, you got to be able to speak the language a little bit. Otherwise I think, I think you would probably lose a little bit of respect too. I mean, you know, it's not, it's not just losing respect. It's just not going to work. I mean, you don't know. So there's two different ways of delegation. There's, there's, there's delegation from abjuration, which is, I don't know how to do this. It scares me. Uh, I don't have a clue to even do it. You handle it. That's a recipe for disaster that never works. You want to get to a point of delegation from stewardship, which is here's how we do it here. Here's why we do it this way. This is how long we think it should take. Here's how we measure the quality. Here's how long we think it should uh, cost, or how much you think it should cost. Here's what we want it back by. And, uh, and here's our system for which you to follow. Now you go do it. Uh, that's delegation from stewardship. And unless you know how to do it, you really can't delegate from a standpoint of stewardship. So 
um, you know, I really want to dispel the myth that, that you can start a technology business and not know the first thing about coding. Cause it's, 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 it's almost impossible. Right. Unless, yeah. unless you've got like a right hand man or woman, like in the trenches with you yeah. that can handle that. And then you go focus on the other things. That's a match made in heaven. Uh, but it's hard to recruit that person if you don't know the first thing about any of this. True. True. Uh, tell us how, how, how to build a growth flywheel in our business, um, no matter what size it is. So you want to look at what the exhaust is of the business and look at ways to use what the business is doing to help propel it forward. And so an example of this might be, uh, I don't know, let's say you own a hair salon and every day people come in and their hair looks like crap and they leave and their hair looks great. And so that's the exhaust of the business is people walking out the front door with their hair. You know, if it's, if it's, if it's, if it's a female's hair salon, that's new, got new color and it's straight. Well, the exhaust of that could help propel the business forward in terms of taking before and after uh, shots, TikTok videos, uh, t- customer testimonials while they're right there, showing some sort of unique proprietary process while you're doing it, showing a product line that only you use that people don't use. Like that's the natural exhaust that a hair salon is putting, putting out. You can use that, repurpose it on social, uh, put it in a newsletter, um, things like that to help create a flywheel effect to bring more customers in. Uh, so looking for ways for what the business does to help propel it forward. In the case of a much more uh, sophisticated example of this is, is Uber's flywheel. So Uber, Uber understands that uh, the more drivers they get, the lower wait times go down for a car. And the lower that wait times go down for a car, more people use the app. More people use the app more drivers use the app, more drivers use the app, cost goes down, cost goes down, more, more people use it. So that's a flywheel that Uber has at its core. We have a similar flywheel at GreenPal, people ordering lawn mowing services. Uh, you can almost say drivers and, and, and pros and, and, and riders and it's homeowners, where the more vendors that use it, cost goes down, cost goes down, more homeowners use it, and so on. You, you got to look at what the flywheel is at the core of your business and try to accelerate that or else, you know, it's, it's, it's going to be hard to break out beyond one, you know, a million or 10 million or 20 million in revenue. It's hard. It's hard to do that without a flywheel. Sure. Tell, tell us a little bit more about GreenPal. Um, where, where did, obviously, you know, you have that background in landscape. How did you know about that? The need to try to get this connection going what, did it literally come from you trying to find somebody to do, do work for you or, or hearing from people? Where, where did that come from? I think when you're starting a new technology product or starting a new business in, in general, authenticity can be a competitive advantage. It can be helpful to be solving your own problem. And in my case with starting GreenPal, I was solving my own problem. When I ran my first business, we had grown it to a point where we no longer did basic residential services. And so, but people would still call us every day sure. because we had trucks all over town and we were kind of a known little brand in our community. But we would have to tell them. We would have to say, "Hey, listen, sorry, we don't do we don't do residential services." Uh, but we had a value of operating that business to always be helpful. So we would keep a list of names and phone numbers of smaller service providers that wanted that kind of business, and we would refer them out. Then people would say, "Hey, I called those ten people. None of them called me back, or one called me back, promised to give me an ep- estimate. He didn't give me an estimate. Said he was too busy. Do you have any more names and numbers?" And so. We just saw this going over and over again. We were essentially like this connector service. And so when I sold the business, I thought, you know, there is this problem where people want to get this chore done and there's a 
bunch of people out there that want to do it, but it's hard to get connected with them. It's hard to understand what their schedule looks like. It's hard to get quotes. It's hard to hire and pay them. And that idea was validated with seeing what Uber and Lyft and Airbnb were doing. I thought, you know, somebody's going to build an app that's going to solve all this. Might as well be my team and I. And that was uh, where the idea came from. And it was kind of solving my own problem. Yeah, I experienced that every single spring. Because uh, our, our long guy goes away and it's like, oh, how do I find another one? And I have, as a contractor and architect, I have all of these uh, contacts with big, com- you know, bigger companies like you. And it's the same thing. So bravo for, for looking into that. I, I, from somebody who you would use, would use the app, I appreciate that. Awesome. Um, yeah. Maybe uh, kind of want to pivot here um, over to the economy as it stands today. So, you know, the inflation numbers just came out at 8.5%. I would love your take on where do you think we go from here as, as business owners with this kind of inflation, um, you know, at our heels. It's challenging. Uh, one of my favorite books is, uh, the hat, the seven habits of highly affected people by Dr. Stephen Covey. One thing he talks about in that book is your, your circle of concern and your circle of influence. So circle of concern is a big circle. And then in the middle is your circle of influence. So a circle of concern would be um, the war in Ukraine, uh, fuel prices going up, inflation almost hitting double digits, uh, the midterm elections coming up. This is in your circle of concern. These are things you're concerned about. You're monitoring them. You're aware of them. And then inside that circle is a much smaller circle. It's your circle of influence. And uh, that's the circle in which you can act. That's the circle in which you can literally do something about it. And so his point in the book is not necessarily not worry about the circle of concern, but to really just focus all of your time on the circle of influence, what you can do. So, so if, so if you're, you're worried about inflation um, and, and so what's in the circle of concern of inflation? Well, well, maybe it's uh, maybe it start, start to aggressively reduce your burn and pay down debt. Maybe it's look for ways to, to cut the fat out of the business. Uh, maybe you're worried about a recession coming in. And, and, and so you, you understand that if revenue gets chopped by 40%, you may not be able to, to meet all of your obligations. Maybe it's starting to really look at headcount. And, you know, there's two or three people that you're keeping on that might not necessarily be pulling their weight. And rather than wait until you can't make payroll, let's make those cuts today. Um, this is the circle of influence. These are the this, these are the things you can do today, rather than sitting here like you know like me sometimes getting pissed off that inflation's at seven and a half percent. It's like okay, what can I actually do in this little circle? And 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 in his book, he talks about as you act in that little circle, it gets bigger. Uh, your options grow, and and so that's how that's how I look at it. It's like let's be proactive about these things. We know inflation being high is not good. Um, and what can we do today inside of our circle of influence to prepare for it? And a lot of times that, 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 that re- results back to looking for ways to tighten up, run a more efficient shop, uh, looking for that, that head count that isn't necessarily pro- uh, providing ROI, uh, and, and looking for ways to retire maybe some of your obligations and debt. Maybe you have a piece, maybe you have a vehicle that you aren't using all the time. Maybe you can sell it, you know, things like that. Um, is how is how I look at it and, and how I try to get out in front of it because I've 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 woken up one morning and not been able to make payroll. I don't want to do that again. <laughs> yeah, yeah, such good advice. That was great. Uh, I ask this to every guest. I'm just going to ask you, Brian. Knowing what you know now, and if you could go back in time to when you first started your very first business, what is one piece of advice you'd give yourself? Um, I would. Several things, million things. Uh, read more books, uh, listen to more podcasts. Although when I got started, podcasts didn't exist. But uh, 
literally read more books, but uh, specifically, um, you know, when you're starting a business, it can feel like you're pushing on a string and it can feel like I'm doing all of this BS and it's not helping. Nothing's working. And, and I would try to like beat into my head, the, the value of compound interest. Those little things do begin to compound after, after a while. And like, like the, one of my favorite books is a snowball effect, which is the, is the uh, autobiography of Warren Buffett. And, you know, at one point he was the richest man in the world. I think now he's number three, but that book like talks, takes you all the way back to like his first $500 investment and how these things just began to compound and snowball over time. So in the early days, your first year in business, you, it can feel like everything you do, you're doing, nothing's working, but those little things do begin to compound the, the, uh, uh, Warren Buffett's right-hand man is Charlie Munger. He has a quote that says, it says the first hundred grand is a bitch. It's the hardest. The first hundred grand and, and to get put back is, is the hardest and just get that first hundred grand by any means necessary. So these, these are the things I would go back and tell myself 22 years ago. Yeah. Great. Brian, you have been a wonderful uh, guest. Where can people find, follow, and learn more about you and GreenPal? Yeah. So life's too short to mow your own yard. Download Green Pal in the app store or play store. Anybody wants to hit me up, just hit me up on Instagram, Brian M. Clayton. Just drop me a DM there. I'll hit you back. Beautiful. Thanks so much for being, being on the show today, Brian. We really appreciate your time. Thanks, Lance. I enjoyed it. 